بسم اللہ الحمد للہ وسلاۃ وسلم اللہ رسول اللہ ولی وصحاب اجمائین اما بعد فاؤز باللہ من الشیطان الرجیم بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم رب شرحلی صدری ویسر علی عمری وحل القدم السانی اب قولی السلام علیکم ورحمۃ اللہ وبرکاتہ ماڈ برن سسٹرز اینڈ ویلکم ٹو انر ایپیسوڈ آف سیٹرڈے نائٹ لائف ود می راج الحق الحمد للہ وی گون بی ٹاکنگ اباؤٹ اے ویری ویری ایکسائٹنگ اینڈ انٹرسٹنگ اینڈ کانٹروشیل ٹاپک ٹوڈے وچ از یو گیسٹ اٹ اٹس فیمنزم اینڈ آئی ایم فارچونیٹ انف ٹو ہیو اے ویری ویری اسپیشل گیسٹ ود می ہیئر ٹوڈے اینڈ آئی انٹروڈیوس ہیم ان جسٹ اے فیو سیکنڈس بٹ بفور آئی ڈو سو لیم جسٹ ریکویسٹ یو ٹو پلیز شیئر دا لنک آف دس آف دس ویڈیو آف دس لائیو پوڈ کاسٹ ود یور فیملیز فرینڈس اینڈ لوڈ ون سو دیٹ میکسمم پیپل کین انشاء اللہ بینیفٹ فرام دس Uh, also a disclaimer that I will be speaking entirely in the English language today because of our guests and inshallah our guest today is none other than brother Muhammad Hijab from the UK. Mashallah he is a well-known public speaker, debater and mashallah he's debated a lot of uh, heavyweights in the uh, Christian world and in the atheist world as well. So without any further ado, brother Muhammad Hijab, welcome to the Saturday Night Live. ہے uh try to dismantle feminism from uh from an academic perspective i i personally feel that it's good to build something as well for people to lean on once they realize that their foundations uh have been you know uh dismantled so one of the things that i'll start off with is that uh is feminism the only solution to women's rights or are there other alternatives Right so feminism if we if we're talking about feminism feminism as a political philosophy mm-hmm. then we're talking about something which was only really developed properly um in the 19th century and then the second wave developed uh, in the 20th century so obviously there were models of women's rights going on or happening in in different parts of the world different civilizations way before feminism ever existed mm-hmm. um so in terms of feminism and women's rights is very important at the outset to remember that the two things are not interchangeable okay feminism is a reference to a political philosophy or an ideology which has its origins almost exclusively in the west and um and is then proliferated from the west into the rest of the world so i, I wouldn't say that f- uh, feminism in any way shape or form could be conceivably seen as the only model of women's rights because if that was the case then it would give the monopoly to the west to the west really in 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 formulating what women's rights are should be ought to be and or should be governed by so this should be the, the first thing that we put as a caveat when we're talking about feminism as a body of works or as a literature or even as a movement we are talking uh, about something which uh, has sprouted out from the west and is pro- has then been proliferated from the west into the colonial or the colonized world as it were Hmm. So the thing is that a lot of times people when they actually hear the word feminism uh, especially people in Pakistan I'll actually talk about they think that that's the 
uh, that basically feminism is equal to women's rights. So if you kind of try to criticize feminism, uh, the first critique that you'll get is that you, oh, you, you hate women's rights. You don't want women's rights. As a matter of fact, you are uh, a man, you're mansplaining, and now you're basically, uh, you know, trying to talk against women, and you are basically somebody who is, uh, you know, f a very big misogynist, and all of those things you'll get to hear. So I just want to clarify from the onset that uh, actually, when we say that feminism has problems, we're not saying that we're against women's rights. What we are saying, and uh, as a matter of fact, uh, as you as you very rightly mentioned, that as a political philosophy, it has some problems, and inshallah, we'll talk about some of those. So, can we discuss now um, the history of feminism? Where did feminism come from, or how did it even originate, or where did the word even come from? All right. So, feminism, as I kind of alluded to in the first part, it. Uh, really the first because feminism is broken down into different waves in the literature so you've got first wave feminism second wave feminism third wave feminism and so on and so if we're talking about first wave feminism it was really a cause-based um, movement which was centered around um, basically the enfranchisement of women or particularly the woman getting the vote in america in england and in canada in those three countries in particular um and so really we're talking about the early 1900s First wave feminism took um, took uh, took the public sphere, and women were trying to argue for uh, the vote. Uh, and so, obviously, before that, you do have literature from women such as Mary Wollstonecraft, who wrote in the late 1800s, and who is credited by many uh, feminist um, scholars with uh, being the first black woman to fully explain a feminist position. You know, uh, and obviously she had a back and forth with a uh, philosopher called Rousseau. Uh, but this is something uh, else. Really, as a movement, the first wave was in the 20th uh, uh, century, the, the beginning of the 1900s. And it was focused on women getting the vote. And then second wave feminism, which is really where ideas of the patriarchy or the patriarchal society mm. and, uh, you know, women getting equal pay, and the domestic chores being separated uh, equally, or, or even ideas such as those explaining that men are biologically uh, oppressive of women and so on and so forth. Many of these ideas, which are very popular now, hmm. um, but become less popular because of third wave feminism, but we'll come to that. That was really in the 60s, 60s and 70s, second wave feminism really took off. And if you just go to Google Ngram or one of the use one of the softwares and put the word feminism in, because Google Ngram is actually quite an interesting software. So what you'll do is you'll put in a, a keyword and they'll track how many times this keyword has been used in a book, for example, going back all the way back to the 1700s or whatever. And if you put the word feminism in, you'll if feminism in, you'll see that in the 60s and 70s, there was really a spike in the usage of the word. So as, as a term, really, it wasn't really used um, until about the 60s and 70s in reference to women's rights, in reference particularly to, you know, equal uh, equality uh, uh, in the household and equality in terms of opportunities, job opportunities and so on and so forth. Uh, so 60s and 70s. And then third wave feminism really took place when there was um, a discussion. I would say this discussion started as a race discussion by some feminists who believed that, you know, um, that black people were not being represented uh, in the struggle as much as white people were and so on. And then third wave feminism really took uh, full force, I think, with the idea of intersectionality. Intersectionality is something that 
a woman called Kim, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw put forward, I think, in 1984, where basically she was saying, like, you come at a crossroads and there's, there's an intersection of different things. So you have an intersection of, you know, it's not just gender, but it's race, gender, identity, class, and all those things have to be factored in to the equation when we're talking about feminism. Fourth wave feminism wasn't really a thing. And I've written a book called Fifth Wave Feminism, which is um, really a small book outlining uh, the evolution of feminism, which is available on Amazon. So really, there's three major waves uh, of feminism. And these three major waves took place, I would say, from um, you know the, the early 20th century all the way through to the 1990s, I would say. This is the span. And um, there's different kind of discussions. Now you have things like queer theory as well, which are quite popular in Western academic circles, which which put more focus not on, uh, you know, the, the, the dualism of man and woman, but they put more focus on sexuality. They put more focus on disability, maybe a little bit more focus on disability as well, a bit more focus on, uh, you know, the trans project, transgenderism. And so uh, that has actually at times become uh, something which is conflicted with the second wave model. So, mm. so much so that, um, second wave models have been under attack by the third wave uh, ap approaches because third wave approaches will say, well, the patriarchy is 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 a very oversimplified um, dualism, right? So you have the man oppressing the woman, but a, a queer theorist would say, well, how do we know they're men and how do we know they're women? What kind of pronouns are we talking about? Gender is much more fluid in the first place. And then they'll because they're putting all these intersections, they're putting, you know, class and race and all these other things, they say, but there's different kinds of um, uh, systems of uh, exploitation that are taking place. It's not just gender. If at all, gender is something to be taken seriously because most third-wave feminists see gender as extremely fluid. So the, so the, the discourse has moved on quite massively now. I think what's, what's, what's still quite relevant and what um, people in the quote-unquote developing world, people, places like Pakistan and places like where I'm from originally, which is Egypt, are starting to get a flavor of is second wave feminism, right? Because third wave ideas are quite complex. Um, you know, they're, they're more in line with, uh, with a, you know, a postmodern thought and so on. But second wave ideas, almost anyone can understand that men and women should be treated the same and equally in the house and outside of the house and so on and so forth. And I think a lot of women are taking on this mantle, thinking that this is an idea which is somewhat neutral or is a good idea or is the manifestation of justice but the truth of the matter is actually this is a western idea uh, and it has historical roots and it goes back to the 1960s okay so one thing that i've noticed is that you know throughout the first wave second wave third wave there yeah. seems to be this narrative that women have been perpetually subjugated by men <clears throat> throughout history and yeah. one of the problems that this raises is that um what you're trying to imply by that is that women are by default inferior, that they let themselves be subjugated in that way. How would you how would you react to that? Yeah, that's one of the, uh, the problems. Another problem is that what a third wave feminist would say is, well, let's take the example of America. Let's take the example of America uh, before 90, sorry, 1865 or whenever it was that slaves became illegal. Hmm. So let's talk about pre-Third Thirteenth Amendment, because in the Constitution you have something called the Thirteenth Amendment in America, which um, illegalized uh, slavery. Hmm. Let's let's go into a family somewhere in the Bible Belt, and let's say that there, there's a family that owned two slaves, a man and a woman, and in fact the woman has got children. Hmm. So the white woman in this context, okay, which is meant to be in this paradigm, 
the most subjugated and oppressed of people, yeah, is in fact the subjugator and the oppressor of the slaves that she has, who she's who she's enslaved because of uh, a feeling of superiority. Uh, she's enslaved because she feels like that's an entitlement that she has, and in fact, first wave feminism is marred with this with this idea of um, white women having privilege over black men, so much so that a lot of the white feminists would make this as an argument. How because black men in America actually got the vote before white women did. This is a very interesting point. Black men got the vote before white women did. So one of the arguments some white feminists were making. And I mentioned this in my book. They were, they were made, like, you know, they were saying, how could these black people who deserve to be lynched, deserved all this kind of, how could they get the vote before us? So it was a racist enterprise in its uh, fetal stages. Hmm. So the point is, a third third wave feminism will come in and say, well, hold on, the white woman is not the most oppressed, or women therefore cannot be the most oppressed because you have different you have different kinds of identifiers here. A white woman can have a black slave, and that black black slave can be oppressed. So you have to factor in now class, you have to factor in socioeconomic status, you have to factor in economic class, you have to factor in education, you have to factor in all these things. And when you do so, the picture starts to become much more complicated. It's no longer a very basic picture of men subjugating women in the way that you've uh, described, which is, which is in fact the, 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 what I would call the meta-theory or the meta-narrative that second-wave feminism espouses. Okay, and something else that I found very interesting, uh, or rather it's a bit of a contradiction uh, on yeah. the part of some of the leading feminists like uh, like Simone de Beauvoir, uh, yeah. who actually goes out to explain that what are the differences between men and women, as many other people have as well. But then at the same time, uh, they want different things to be treated similarly or in That's the same right. way. And so we know this from sport, for example, that and, and many other things, you can think of many, many examples where this does not happen in real life. Like, for example, if you talk about a cricket team uh, where we have, you know, we have batsmen, we have bowlers, we have fielders. Um, if if all of them started to say that, you know, we all need to be sent as opening batsmen or we all need to be sent as strike bowlers, obviously the captain is going to lose his mind that, you know, you each one of you has a different function. And I'm going to utilize you in the capacity where I see you uh, the fittest. But now here we have somebody who is a leading feminist, uh, an authority on feminism, admitting very clearly uh, that you know men and women are have stark differences. And then at the same time, in the same breath, she goes on to say that. But no, we all need to be. We all should be. We ought to be. Uh, could be, would be, you know, all of those things. Uh, we have to be treated equally. So how would you deal with someone? who comes up with this kind of argument? This is a good point. Um, I would say that, uh, that that's exactly right. If you read The Second Sex, which is the book that was written by Simone de Beauvoir, mm. and, and the, in the chapter entitled Biology, where she actually mm. talks about biological difference, you'll be surprised as to the level of um, candidness that she actually employs in that that particular chapter. She, she will say that women are weaker than men. She'll say that women are more emotional than men. She'll say that, you know, she'll say things which if you say to a feminist as a man, maybe you'll be chastised for, for doing so. You're, how can you say that? That's very sexist for you to say so. Yeah. But the, or you can say the founding mother of feminism, Simone de Beauvoir, in her rendering of the biological differences and the anatomical differences between men and women actually starts off with those presuppositions. So she'll say that men and women are different physiologically, biologically, anatomically. 
um, psychologically, uh, psychologically, and all these differences are real. Mm-hmm. But the point that she makes, which is the premise of second wave feminism, it is actually the philosophical premise, is that despite all those differences, that men and women should be treated the same. But the question that what would, would need to be asked here is, why so? Why, despite all of those differences, should men and women be treated the same? Because the, the, the hidden assumption here is that equa- equality uh, should mean identicality, right? In, in other words, you have uh, d- these differences, but despite those differences, there should be equality. Hmm. The question we would have to put is, why and how so? So this is actually goes back to the burden of proof. The burden of hmm. proof is upon the one who's making the claim. Um, there is a hadith to this effect, but it's also a logical principle. Uh, the hadith, an Islamic uh, saying, well, well, you know, the burden of proof is upon the one who's making the claim. The same thing applies here with, uh, with this situation. If someone's making this claim that despite all those differences, there should be equality, then the question is why. In fact, what, what has caught a lot of second wave feminists out um, to the extent where other second wave feminists would attack those feminists is is the uh, exceptionalism that they Im- some of them have actually employed. So, for example, there have been second wave feminism in the UK that would, would argue for something like maternity leave. Now, maternity leave is is basically, a t- I don't know if you have it in Pakistan, but it's, it's, it's a mandatory period. I think they've reduced it now. It used to be two years, uh, or one year, whatever it is, one whole year off, but you still get paid mm-hmm. if you have a child, if you have a baby. Right. Whereas a man used to only get two weeks. Now, I think they've reduced the woman's one to I don't know how many months or whatever it is, but there's still more than the man's one. Right. So but but in so doing, you're, you're, you're admitting that biological differences should mean that there's a difference in the law. Right. Because you have different needs. So we have to cater for those needs in a different way. So if that is the case with maternity leave and if that is the case with. Um, other things which require such adjustments to be made, right? For example, even the idea of giving birth and um, breastfeeding. Breastfeeding is one of the, I mean, I was reading one of the feminist books because that's a clear disparity, a biological disparity between men and women. Uh, women need to breast, or they, uh, in breastfeeding the child, they will give the child biological advantages and they will get themselves biological advantage, have uh, advantages from so doing. So that's another difference, right? So clearly there's going to be differences that we can spell out, biological differences. The question is, you know, the question is when we get to the point, the critical mass points out here where there's so many differences here, how should we accommodate for those differences? Some feminists would say, actually, we should not accommodate for those differences because our, our premise is, despite all of those differences, equality should still be maintained. But really, we would say that that depends upon the idea that despite the difference despite the biological and physiological and psychological differences, there should be equality. But that premise is itself unproven. So they have to prove that premise in order for us to proceed with. But that's the difficulty because it's impossible to prove that premise. And, and this, is where we, this is where we have to push the burden of proof on, on, on secondary feminists. So we actually have to prove that those differences should not necessitate um, uh, a special treatment. Hmm. Now, one of the things that uh, I also find that 
an argument is made that you know uh, in the times of the ancient man uh, man being the the stronger of the two sexes uh, was the one who was the hunter gatherer who would basically uh, cultivate the land who would till the soil and he would extract the minerals all of these are uh, works that require hard labor so men by default because of his position uh, in society became the hunter gatherer and the one who was going to provide for the family and then the women had to basically rear the family and manage the children and all of that stuff but now right. they say that you know uh, now we're living in the 20th in the 21st century and so men and women are now working in very comfortable offices so the issue of a man being the one providing uh, bread for the family or being the hunter gatherer so to speak is no longer required and so uh, women can equally do all of these functions and roles and so therefore men and women should have absolutely equal um, status in society they should have equal uh, job opportunities and so on and so forth how do we counter a person making such a claim well i mean th then in that case if if someone says bec because the you know men are biologically or through the evolution process or whatever it is have been positioned in a place where they are hunter hunter gatherers is this what they're saying that that yeah. because of that that, that should continue uh, they're saying that because that used to be the case, but now yep. it's no longer needed. Now you don't need hunter, oh. hunting and gathering. Oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, well, no, no one is saying this is, there's two issues here, right? Mm. The issue is philosophically is very diff difficult to say, to, to go from a ought, from a is to an ought. This is called the mm. ought is fallacy, right? So mm. just because something is the case, mm. uh, it doesn't mean it ought to be the case. Okay, so just because something is the case, it doesn't mean it ought to be the case. We are not making the claim that we're not making the claim that actually because men were hunter gatherers, that's the reason why they are the, the ones who should be getting, uh, you know. And we're also not making the claim that women should not work. We, we don't mm. make this claim. We simply make the claim that God Almighty, as Muslims, our claim is God Almighty is all knowing. And he knows best the affairs of the creation. He knows best the affairs of men. And he knows best the affairs of women. And he knows how to assign and apportion, you know, the uh, rules and responsibilities to men and women perfectly in line with the divine wisdom. And within the divine wisdom, there's an inbuilt flexibility. I mean, it's not to say that if I lived in, um, you know, somewhere in, a, in in the desert or, you know, in uh in a tribe somewhere that the rules and responsibilities are going to be the same for men and women as they would be in the West, because there's a different structure and there is flexibility there. We're not denying that. In fact, that's not our claim. We are, we are just saying that the, the asal, or you would say the default, we believe that the default is equality because the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, that certainly men are equal to women. This is the, this is the, uh, debates however that there are exceptions to that right and now how do we define those exceptions we define them based on the divine guidance we say that the quran says how does he not know what he created and he is the one who's all subtle and all aware so it goes back to that if someone believes that this quran is from allah it's from the all-knowing entity and agency then it follows logically that actually he knows best what's for men and he knows best what's for women. He knows best those things which should be afforded to men, which are not afforded to women and vice versa. And that's why there's a beautiful verse in Surah Nisa, which where he says, 
And do not wish to have what the other one has. In other words, That for men is a portion of what they have earned and for women is a portion of what they have earned. So in other words, God has assigned the roles and responsibilities in a perfect way in line with his divine guidance and his divine knowledge and his ability to know all things. And he tells women what is the best thing for them to do. And men what is the best thing for them to do. For the most part it's the same thing. It's the same thing. But for where there is an exception. Where there is an exception. There will be a tailored rule made for men. And a tailored rule made for women. So we, we, we're not saying that. Uh, we, we're not saying that. Oh, it's because men are biologically uh, different that there should not be any flexibility we accept that there should be some flexibility but it has to go back to the divine uh, guidance of god the all-knowing hmm. i think one other way to uh, you've actually explained it very nicely mashallah one of the things that i think that uh, you know even though if we were to take that argument that men have been hunter-gatherers and now there is no need for that, I think there's yeah. still a need for women to produce children. And that that men can never do. Even if they tried it for like a million years, they could never fulfill that yeah. role of uh, producing a child and then caring for that child. And one, one thing else that I found out was that um, nowadays when you have all these uh, STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, men are uh, in, in far greater numbers being attracted to these subjects where a lot of the jobs are in any case. And even before that, during the Industrial Revolution, you had men going into factories and doing the hard labor and as coal miners and all of these uh, tough, difficult tasks, men were automatically doing. And even now in, for example, Scandinavian countries where they've given people the, the opportunity that you, they should get into everything and and, uh, all the subjects are open still women by choice are not going into uh, the stem fields uh, they're deliberately choosing uh, the healthcare sector or uh, or for example nursing sector teaching uh, for example profession all of these areas uh, which uh, are not as maybe work intensive as some of the hard labor that men have to do. And also, for example, from an Islamic perspective, when we talk about jihad, fi sabilillah, and so on, uh, clearly you have differences in men and women which prevent them from fulfilling certain tasks. Like, for example, men can never be as caregiving as women are. Like, for example, if you say, why is the maqam of the mother greater than the maqam of the father? Because the way a mother can be a caregiver, the father can never be. Although there can be exceptions, obviously, but I'm talking about a general perspective. Likewise, men participate, uh, like participating in the battlefield or doing hard labor, these things men are conditioned to do in a much more better way without having a lot of stress on them, as opposed to asking women to fulfill similar uh, job descriptions. So I think even if we handle it from that perspective, uh, we can give the answer. Now, uh, moving forward, I wanted to bring up uh, something which I saw recently. Some people shared it with me uh, via social media, via Instagram and WhatsApp and what have you. Uh, I'm going to share the screen with you and show you yeah. something that was posted on a uh, feminist page in Pakistan. And so we'll take your reaction on that. So let me just uh, bring it up uh, one second. Uh, so here we go. There we have it. So. This is a meme. Uh, I'm sure you're used to memes a lot, mashallah. They've made quite a few on you as well. Uh, you're finished and all the rest of it, mashallah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so this one says, this, uh, the guy on the left is a Muslim feminist. 
and he's saying Islam is the most feminist, feminist religion in the world. And then the other person, it's basically quoting ayat from the Quran where uh, beating of the wife has been mentioned or sex slavery is fine. This is what they're saying. Obviously, I'll um, have your view on this. Uh, child marriage, women's testimony, half of that of men and daughter's inheritance worth half of that of the son. So an argument like this, how do we respond to uh, such uh, satirical commentary on Islam? Well, I think the, the, the comments on the left and on the right are both uh, caricatures of the situation. They're, they're mm -hmm. not actually correct either way. I mean, uh, so, so Muslim, Muslim feminists, Islam is the most feminist religion in the world. I wouldn't concur with that. I wouldn't concur that Islam is the most fe feminist religion in the world. Mm -hmm. I would say that feminism is the most feminist religion in the world because, you know, it depends on what how you define religion. If religion is mm -hmm. just a set of rituals and practices and a belief in a super a super being or a high, uh, higher being, then obviously that d disqualifies political philosophies of being religions. But uh, if you take a, like a Durkheimian understanding of what religion is, Emil Durkheim was one of the leading sociologists, uh, seen as one of the founding fathers of um, sociology. The way he defines religion is uh, a system or a set of beliefs uh, and which can include political philosophy. So mm. first of all, whenever someone talks about religion, we have to be very clear here, right? So that's the first thing I would mention. So that I, I think feminism is actually a religion because mm. people live by it. They live by it. They have rituals associated with it. Maybe they're not rituals like, you know, in the conventional sense of mm. going to do wudur and praying and all that stuff or in the Hindu sense where you are, you know, Hindu rituals, whatever. It's actually a, a type of ritual when you, when, when you have conversations with your other half, you know, and these conversations demarcate gender roles and you live your life by that. And in fact, the Islamic word deen means way of life. And feminism is definitely a deen. It's definitely a way of life. So that's the first thing I would say. I would say that mm -hmm. feminism itself can be, depending on what our definition of religion is, can be seen as a religion, which is independent from any other religion, which has differences and similarities with Islam, just like it has differences and similarities with Christianity and Judaism uh, and so on. So that's mm. the first thing. In terms of the second thing on, on the right, there's all of these kind of uh, Orientalist uh, tropes and, uh, you know, beat your wives and sex slavery is fine and child marriage and, you know, and all of these things are all kind of things that we've heard before. And it's a broken record, actually, of, uh, of things that have been said and disproven from, uh, you know, Orientalists, and uh, and those individuals who are trying to malign and attack Islam, for the most part, is half truths and uh, you know a caricature and uh, things which which once again, I mean we can we can deal with each one of them one uh, at a time, but mm. as I say, these are things which have been dealt with before, and we've have we have videos on almost every single one of those things. I've got that on my own channel. I've got videos on like long videos on each mm. of those uh, contentions. But long story short. You know, from from a uh, secular perspective, morality itself, which I think is, is this undergirds the entire discussion. How do you know what's right and wrong? How do you know what's objectively right and what's objectively wrong? In order for you to know what's right and wrong, you need to have a mechanism of finding out. Now, the truth of the matter is there is no political philosophy out there that has a mechanism which is scientific or otherwise logical, which one can be certain as to whether that thing is right and wrong. So in other words, you can't even find out what's right and wrong through feminism.
Hmm. A lot of people think it's just common sense to think men and women should be treated equally. It's not common sense. This is a socialized ideological belief which started in the 1960s. If it was common sense, then people would have known it for millennia. People would have been talking about this for millennia. What was conventional common sense wisdom for all of the previous centuries and uh, generations was that men and women have certain roles, which are like you've mentioned in your previous segment, which are very specific to them. For example, childbirth, for example, pregnancy, for example, uh, breastfeeding. That was common sense. The fact that men are better suited to fighting other men, that was common sense and still is for the most part common sense. These are things which were common sense. That common sense logic started to not become common sense in the 1960s when these um, superimposition, contrived superimpositions of it's got to be equality between men and women, despite all those differences, started to become something popular and fashionable. Hmm. You've made a very beautiful point, brother. Uh, uh, Alhamdulillah, this is uh, very enlightening, mashallah. Uh, the thing is, I've had uh, discussions with certain uh, feminists and very, very pro-feminist uh, women, uh, even on television. And one of the things that, you know, we just saw in the post there, you, talking about Islam, criticizing Islam, you know, taking ayat. I think one thing that um, a lot of people haven't done, which they haven't even done with feminism, to be honest, is that when they talk about uh, feminism, they haven't really read up on feminism. And it's the same case with Islam as well. People talk about Islam, but they haven't really read Islam. And some of these ayat that are mentioned, you find that they are taken extremely out of context and without really having that intention to uh, study the the Quran itself or to understand how the Prophet ﷺ explained them or how the Sahaba understood them and did Islam actually encourage people to go ahead and beat their wives and all of that so uh, subhanallah it is uh, our, the lack of our own knowledge uh, and the lack of our understanding of Islam which has led us to these type of you know uh, very shaky and faulty arguments so I will however mention now some of the rights because I saw some of the comments people asking that you know what are those rights that Islam actually gives to women so let me just mention them as I did mention these rights on one of the talk shows that happened on television and I asked those women on the panel uh, I believe all of whom were uh, feminist that I'm going to tell you what Islam gives to women so you tell me what else do you want so once I mention this I will ask you uh, as well uh, brother hijab that um, you know what else is there that the feminist movement is demanding so I said number one Islam gives women the right to an education the Prophet ﷺ, he said that you know to seek an education is a right upon every Muslim whether that's a man or a woman uh, they get a share in the inheritance and so the thing is when oftentimes when people talk about the share of the woman they say oh it's half the share but the but the thing is uh, what are the liabilities on a woman what is expected for her to spend on and you find that when the man is actually spending he's got responsibilities everything that he earns he has yeah. to spend on his wife and kids whereas the same is not true for the woman yeah. if a woman earns um, all the money she earns is hers 100% hers but this is not the, uh, the same for the man yeah. so whatever mm -hmm. she gets share in the inheritance that's purely hers this nobody else's uh, Islam uh, discourages domestic violence uh, we say that you know no woman should be married 
unless she, her consent has been involved, she cannot be forced into marriage. We say that, it, like for example, in some parts of Pakistan, there is a very wicked custom of marrying women off to the Quran. We say that that's completely un-Islamic. There is no sense of honor killings or there is something called karokari, which happens in Pakistan as well. As unfortunate as that may be, that's got nothing to do with Islam. And we are completely against that. Women have to be given their share, the, the mahar. The husband has to pay the dower to the woman, not the other way around. As we find that in the subcontinent and perhaps even in Europe uh, and the Americas people who are there oftentimes they uh, make the bride pay the husband which is not the case in Islam as a matter of fact the husband is supposed to pay the bride likewise they have a share in the inheritance or the property uh, when the father or some of the family relatives pass away um, you cannot uh, be unkind to your wives the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam he uh, told us time and time again that the best of you are those who are best to their wives and the ones who are best in character Likewise, her expenses, all of her expenditure is taken care of by the father when she is uh, in his custody. And then when she gets married, then the husband has to take care of all of her expenses. So subhanAllah, she is never going to be under any kind of pressure to uh, you know, earn for herself and to you know, find a living. But as a matter of fact, Islam provides her that safety net that she can have that from her father or her husband. Whatever she earns, as I said, is going to be exclusively her own property. Um, there have to be, I would say, laws regarding implementation of these things as soon as possible because oftentimes we realize that uh, there is a kind of um, injustice taking place within society that, for example, if the brother has inherited something, he will refuse to share uh, the property with her sister or you know, for example, if uh, one of the family members passes away, then there is always going to be disputes about inheritance. So we say that that has to be clarified in accordance to the Sharia and uh, whoever deserves how much should be given that. Likewise, a woman has uh, is, a, is an equal citizen. She has a right to vote if need be. Uh, Islam honors the mother. Uh, more than the father, the daughter has been honored also when the Prophet ﷺ, he said that the man who has three daughters and he raises uh, them up uh, properly according to the Islamic etiquette, him and I shall be like this on the Day of Judgment. And the Sahabi who asked the question that, Ya Rasulullah, what about if he has two daughters? And he said, even him. So SubhanAllah, uh, the daughter has been uh, exalted, likewise the wife as well. And so Islam defines gender roles, but defining gender roles does not mean that you know, uh, people are worse or better than each other. The only thing is that when Allah subhanahu wa looking at and knowing the nature of the man and woman uh, has given us this thing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Men are the protectors and maintainers of women. This does not mean that, you know, men have to sit on a couch and eat popcorn all day. No, they have to take care of their wives. They have to take care of their children. They have to uh, look out for them. They have to protect them. They have to shelter them. All of, all of those things are there. So Alhamdulillah, Islam provides ample space uh, for both genders. And it's not about a constant struggle or a fight between men and women. Yani who is better, who is worse. No, it's, it's not that. Rather, Allah subhanahu wa who is the all-knowing, he's al-aleem, he's al-hakim, he has told us the guidelines of how to live your lives in the best of ways. And so if we are true Muslims, then inshallah, we don't have any problems with this. So inshallah, with that, um, I'll come to my next question, which is with regards to feminism uh, leading or leading up to atheism, uh, because of its roots in liberal philosophy. So I'd like to have your take on that, inshallah. Before we get to that, I just wanted to kind of comment on a few of the things I've heard. I think it was very good that you've kind of listed that. 
for the listeners. But some of the things like inheritance, some people have serious misconceptions about. Yeah. Like, for example, the, the fact that, or the question of whether men have more than women is not correct. It's not, it's mm. not correct that men get more than women because mm. it depends on the situation. In fact, if, if you tally up, because inheritance is actually quite a complicated thing. If you tally up all of the situations where men get more than women and compare them with those which women get more than men, and or that they get the same. There's more of the second and third category. In other words, there's more situations where, in, where a woman, gets, a woman more. gets more than a man or that they get the same. So, for, for example, in the Quran, it says, uh, you know, the, the verse in inheritance, it says, um, you know, uh, uh, if, if it's for two girls, uh, then for, for them it's two-thirds of what has, uh, what has been left behind. And that's actually the biggest share because a lot of people think which is that for the male is two times as much as uh, the female. It's not talking about all males versus all females. It's talking about the son versus the daughter. But if, if we're talking about uh, the mother versus the father or the, uh, or the, the brother versus the sister, it's not always the case. And in fact, it can be the case that the mother gets more than the father or that the sister gets more than the mother. I'll give you an example, right? So for example, if, if a woman dies and she leaves behind a mother, a father, and a brother, hmm. so she leaves behind a mother, father, and a brother. So she's left behind, let's say, a mother, uh, a mother, which is a female, a father, a brother, and a sister, let's say. Yeah, a brother and a sister. Uh, in this case, the, the main beneficiary will be the sister, will be the sister. So the sister will get more than the brother. So in this situation, the sister will actually get, uh, and then the mother and the father will get, they'll get, they will inherit, and the brother will not actually inherit at all in this in this equation. I'm just giving you one of many equations. So the brother, the male here, gets no no inheritance. But if a, if a female leaves behind a mother, father, brother, and sister, then the the the, the main beneficiary will be the sister, and the father and mother will, will benefit, and then the brother will get nothing. So this is an example of situation where the, the males actually get less. Than the females in fact the females get much more than the males so depends on what we're talking about obviously if we're talking about sons and daughters it's a little bit different as you've mentioned because sons have responsibilities that daughters will not have hmm. and so everything there's, there's a very sophisticated economic system um and and this is why when you put up those things on the right i said this is all caricatured because hmm. you know th these things these notions if you really look at it with a jurisprudential eye you realize that a lot of these things are actually misconceptions it's, it's a lack of knowledge that people have that, that make them think of these things. Likewise, uh, when we were talking about equality in front of the law, I mean, the Quran makes this extremely clear. I mean, it says, you know, uh, that God does not let to waste any action of those who do actions from you, male and female, and both of you are from each other. In other words, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. And so, so much so, the Quran actually repeats this rhetoric. This rhetoric is not just like one verse in the Quran. It's something you find in Surah Al-Amran, uh, in Surah Al-Nahl. You'll find it in Surah Al-Ahzab. Even where one of the wives came to the Prophet and asked him about gender roles. And verses came down, in the Muslimina wal-Muslimati wal-Mu'minina wal-Mu'minati A long verse talking about males and females, males and females, males and females. To make it very, very clear that the injunctions of the Quran, whenever it's directing it to a man, or, or, or the Arabic male, right? Mu'minun, for example, it's called Ja'am Dhakr Salam. It's not just males, it's talking to men and women. Whereas when, it's, when it is directing it to women, 
is directing it specifically to men in most cases. And the evidence of this is in Surah Al-Ahzab, where Allah says, Min al-mu'minina rijal. From the believers are women. Hmm. So we, now we know that whenever Allah says mu'minun, or whenever Allah speaks to, um, in that sense, to, to us, he's speaking to both men and women. He's not speaking just to men. And that's why the asl, that's why the Prophet said to the people, to Aisha, his wife, that certainly men are equal to women. So that is the asal. That is the, unless there is very specific uh, specifiers to the contrary. So I just wanted that to be extremely clear because although we do differ with the feminists, there is one premise which we do agree with them on. The default is equality. But second wave feminists will say, we'll define the exception. Muslims will say, no, let God define the exception. And we believe that God that the Quran is from God, and that's what basically does uh, the differences. So where, where you do find differences between men and women, there's usually very, very good reason, um, which can which can be inferred through um, the sciences, as, uh, as an example. Sorry, what was the question you asked? Okay, so uh, one thing that I just, just add to that, and then I'll ask you yeah. the question again, is that, yeah. Obviously, when we're talking about feminism and comparing it to Islam, you're absolutely right that, you know, there are certain things in feminism that we agree with. Like, for example, I would say that we can take the analogy of two trees that are planted right next to each other. So one is the tree of Islam and one is the tree of feminism. Both of them have branches that kind of intersect and they join mm -hmm. at certain parts, but their roots are extremely different. So, for example, the roots of feminism, we'll just talk about how it's based upon the liberal philosophy and so on. Whereas when you look at Islam, it is our obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his commands. So we don't we don't say that you know my aql is saying that you know women should get this and my aql is saying that men should get that. We're saying if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who's the Lord of the heavens and the earth, if he's told us something, then he is al-alim al-hakim. He knows better what a man is and what a woman is. And he is in the best position to tell you what a man should do and what a woman should do. And at the end of the day, we have to be uh, we ha we have to be obedient to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As Allah subhanahu wa says, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ So our job is to worship Allah subhanahu wa to obey Him. And so whatever He says, you, so I mean, how, how odd would that be if, for example, Muslim men, for example, started to create a, a manist movement or, uh, for example, menism, for example, and say that, you know, why are we being subjugated? Because we have to work all day, we have to provide for the family, uh, we have to work in coal mines, and we have to go fight in the battlefield, and we have to risk our lives every single day uh, to earn a livelihood, and then our money, most of it, goes on to our wives and our kids. So what is the net uh, money that I save, which I can spend on myself? I mean, I wish I could buy shoes and handbags as well you know i had plenty of spending money and things like that so the thing is that argument can easily yeah. be made from the men's perspective as well but we say and i think everybody should say as muslims that we are obedient to allah subhanahu wa no matter what the command is and we know that sometimes whatever the commands are they might be easy for some people difficult for others but the overall uh, outline is that we have to be obedient to allah subhanahu wa so um, having said that i just wanted to um, come to this point that kind of uh, understanding the link between feminism and liberalism, because we're, not, we're talking about a lot of isms now. So feminism, liberalism, and how does that, is it possible for somebody who's a feminist to be inclined towards, or perhaps the path towards atheism would be made easy for such a person? In some ways, yeah. I mean, remember, fe feminism, as, as I've kind of already alluded to, can be seen as a religion in its own right, right? So... Atheism is a lack of belief in God or lack of belief in the deity, right? So we're talking about lacking of belief. 
And the, the thing is, you can be a theist, technically, you can believe in God, but not believe in revelation. That's a technical mm. possibility. But as Muslims, we believe in God and we believe in the revelation. So we believe that God didn't just decide to create uh, human beings and just leave them like that. He decided to create them with purpose, with a teleos, and he sent them revelation. He sent them prophets and messengers to communicate the guidance. Um, in terms of how the can be seen, especially in, in Muslim in the Muslim world, that feminism and or liberalism can move to feminism, is when the doubts that someone accumulates from um, feministic and liberalistic interrogations mm -hmm. can become so acute that they render a person a disbeliever and apostate of Islam. And that happens. So, for mm -hmm. example, if someone is um, pushed on questions like, uh, well, how, how could it be the fact that, for example, in, the, in a marriage, a man is a qawwam, like you mentioned, mm -hmm. like, you know, maintain and protect. Why should there be that distinction between men and women? And then what happens is the, 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 they stop believing in a complementarian system because, remember, feminists are egalitarian. So they believe in, a, in an egalitarian system within the house. Muslims are complementarians. They believe in a complementary system where there are some things that men get to decide that women don't and vice versa. And so if you, if, if somebody says, well, I don't actually believe in the complementarian system, I believe in an egalitarian system, and go as far as to say what one person called Amina Wadud said. Hmm. You know, I have a conscientious gap when I look at 434 of the Quran, where it talks about and he said that men are maintainers and protectors of women. I, I, I can't believe that. I, I, she actually says no, no, meaning I reject the verse. Then that actually causes someone to apostate from the religion altogether. They're long, they no longer can be a Muslim and reject hmm. verses of the Quran, like in that sense. So if that is the case, then it's, a, it's an easy segue into uh, atheism or agnosticism mm. or irreligiosity because what happens is someone will say well i have a cognitive dissonance on the one hand i believe i'm meant to believe in the quran uh, but the other hand i really don't like this ta'addut or the idea of a polygamous marriage that a man can marry up to four wives i i, I can't believe that a god would allow that a man can marry up to four wives and a woman can only marry one man mm. i can't believe that so if someone can't believe that then they have disbelieved in the religion of Islam because the Quran has been very clear about this matter. You know, mm. that you can marry up to four. If you can't do justice, then marry only one. And that's an important point as well, right? But the idea is there is still a, there is still an allowance that exists for men that doesn't exist for women. So if someone is, is so appealed by the feministic interrogation, especially if they have a theological emotional reaction to such a thing as polygamy or to such a thing as qawama or to such a thing as the complementarian system within the house, whatever it may be, that will easily lead them to a, an atheistic pathway and they'll very well uh, might reject the Quran, might reject the Sunnah and become atheists for all intents and purposes, even if they claim to be, by the way, Muslims, because they might not even believe in Islam. They're praying now, they become robots. And they don't so actually believe to, in... Uh, yeah. Add to that, just uh, a brief point, is that, you know, when you, uh, you actually very rightly mentioned that there are many ayat that sometimes a person who claims to be a feminist might have a problem with, especially when it comes to the family system. Uh, as some yeah. of these uh, leading feminists have described, you know, childbirth as... As, as a huge problem, or even marriage as a problem, or and they yeah. even defined it as a comfortable concentration camp, you know, so, so yeah. using language like that, uh, you know, trying to belittle the status of the woman uh, as a mother, as a caregiver, as a nurturer of the family, you know, so when you read ayat of the Quran, which will 
or, or for example, a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ which encourage this type of uh, thing that you should have lots of kids or for example, uh, how we are encouraged to marry and so on and so forth. A person with a feministic framework or that feministic lens uh, can easily uh, have a lot of shubuhat that can sprout in the right. heart. And you know, these shubuhat are far worse than any of the shahwat. And so this is where I've, okay. I find that a lot of times when the youth come to us and ask us, uh, bunch of questions about you know Islam and all of these other isms schisms uh, because they are looking at these um, isms from their own lens and not from the lens of Islam that's where a lot of times uh, instead of saying that you know I believe in Islam and I believe in Allah and I believe in the Quran and whatever it says I accept it they would rather have they would begin to have doubts about the Quran itself which would actually lead people towards um, you know going astray from the straight path I want to ask you a question uh in, uh, just because I'll, obviously you have very big experience in the uh, subcontinent and Pakistan in particular. Uh, a lot of Pakistanis that I've kind of encountered in this country and that have lived in Pakistan and, and have, obviously we've got a big Pakistani community in, in the UK. I've said that Pakistan is particularly susceptible to colonialism, uh, ideological colonialism. So it's particularly susceptible because obviously the English ruled uh, in that region for a very, very long time. And they didn't just export, you know, whatever they exported and create railways or whatever they claim to have done. Mm. In addition to stealing the spices and <laughs> trying to take the land, usurp the land. But they also exported ide ideology, they exported ideas. And one of the chief, most um, detrimental ideologies that they have exported and continue to, continue to explore by way of media and internet and all these things is uh, feministic ideology. and. I, I just feel like sometimes, when, and this might be a psychological thing, because of the hegemonic and superpower position that the West employs now, that when somebody in the, especially educated people, maybe in the middle class in Pakistan, hears a white academic, you know, English-speaking white academic speak about feminism, um, promoting those ideas, that they are more likely to take those seriously than if mm. it was someone who was from somewhere else in the world, or if it was a black person, or if it was another Pakistani person. Yeah. To what extent do you think that's true? That is quite true, because I think uh, we've been uh, ruled by the British for a very, very long time, and this kind mm. of mentality has creeped in, that whatever, we actually call it Gora Saab, for example, the one who's right. white-skinned, right? Uh, whatever mm. the Gora says is supposed to be uh, of a higher value, uh, as opposed to whatever a normal uh, Pakistani, for example, would say. So there, there is that, but I think now, uh, since it's the, the age of social media and all that, I think that may be changing ever so slightly with the, with the upcoming generation, because um, now I think people have become a bit more aware of what's going on in the world uh, because of the fact that they have now diversified and given us so many options to connect with people around the world and social media and all of that stuff. So everybody is now voicing their opinions and so on. So I think now, I think it's becoming a bit more um, of the case that, you know, whoever is speaking uh, logically, rationally, uh, and also from an Islamic perspective, keep in mind that Pakistan is a very traditionalist Muslim country. People here, mm -hmm. they might not be uh, practicing to that level or they might not be, uh, you know, following the guidelines of Islam uh, to the nth degree, but they have a lot of love for uh, the Prophet ﷺ, even though a person might not be praying five times a day. But somehow, miraculously, I mean, to this date, I fail to understand how subhanallah, Allah subhanahu ta'ala has put the love of the Rasul in the hearts of these people uh, and how they will do anything they are willing to do and die for him. Although 
what was would be much more better is to live for him and to live according to his sunnah. But uh, Alhamdulillah, I feel that because Pakistan was created on the premise of La ilaha illallah, uh, they used to say this as a slogan that Pakistan ka matlab kya? La ilaha illallah. That what is the meaning of Pakistan except La ilaha illallah? So it was created on that ideological framework or that ideological uh, kind of mindset. And this is why uh, they wanted a Muslim homeland. So I think people still have a lot of love for Islam in this country. Although the, I would say, the people who are now trying to propagate this feministic, liberalistic, you know, secular ideology make up maybe the the, the five to six percent of the population who uh, unfortunately have a lot of presence on the mainstream media. So a lot of the content that you'll find in Pakistani mainstream media, the news channels, the drama industry, the movie industry, you'll find lots and lots and lots of liberal narrative, lots and lots of feministic narrative in the ads and so on. And now we're having the Women's March here as well, which is called the Aurat March, uh, which happens here now every year. And every year they come up with these feminist slogans. And every time this happens, I get invited to the TV and talk to some feminists and things like that. And so we go and present our case, although uh, throughout the rest of the year, uh, you know, Islamic personalities or people who are connected to the deen, they're not given that much um, airtime. Uh, but but I think with social media, this thing is rapidly changing. Now a lot of youth, alhamdulillah, are uh, learning about the deen, uh, watching podcasts like this and many others. And alhamdulillah, they're, they're getting more aware of uh, what Islam says and they also ask for now references. It's, they're not just going to swallow anything you throw at them, rather they will ask you, uh, is it from the Quran? Is it from the Sunnah of the Prophet uh, Give us the dalil or the evidence for it and inshallah they'll, they'll be able to accept it. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that's, there's some real insights into into that. And I, I, I may die out for you that you can actually continue doing the good work that you're doing there in Pakistan, especially if you're getting you know, airtime and you're able to uh, elaborate a very logical and nuanced case for why our values are in fact uh, correct. But yeah, I mean, it's good. It's good to know that. It's good to know that. And um, it's good to know also that there's a strong Islamic presence in, in Pakistan. It makes a big difference. Alhamdulillah. Okay, so brother, one of the questions that I saw here was that, uh, you see, Islam, uh, you know, in the pre uh, or, or, or rather the postmodern times, we had systems in place which were family centric. So Islam always encouraged that family centric system where uh, there are roles within the family. Uh, women are empowered inside of the house because they have this huge responsibility of rearing the children, rearing the future generations, as Napoleon once said, that give me great mothers and I'll give you a great nation. So they were involved in the family business. They didn't have like monopolies like we have now or corporate entities like we have now. So it's the family business. Women can play a role in that. Uh, you have a nurturing of your future generations, which women have a really pivotal role in that. And so all the power was inside the house. But now with the modern system that we have, which is a state-centric system, all of these power uh, bodies have been kind of outsourced. So for example, the media uh, and the education system the, is, is the one that's now rearing our children. And so that job has been taken away from the mothers. Um, and then you have, for example, financial things. You have now corporations, you have institutions that are basically managing finances. So whoever now controls the finance has the power and so on. The third uh, aspect of power, which is the military. Uh, also, again, men you'll find are in there. So. One of the concerns that you'll get from uh, the feminists are that, you know, you have taken away our power. Uh, and so we want to empower ourselves. We want to be where, for example, the action is, where the money is, where, where we can really make an impact. So how do we counter such a claim that, uh, and when we compare the family-centric system to the state-centric system? 
I think there's two or three things in there which are quite important. Number one is the definition of power. But before that, we need to talk about why power? Like this question of why is power important? Because hmm. remember, you know, liberalism and capitalism are two sides of the same coin. They really are. The t- liberalism and capitalism almost work in, in tandem with one another. And obviously, liber- social liberalism um, and uh, supply-side economics are actually the same thing. I mean, they, they work together. And they have been like that in the West for a very long time. Free market, free market economics, but also capitalism in particular. So the idea of power you know, of money and fame uh, and also military power has always been the intended goal for capitalistic uh, people. Has, has always been something that capitalists have uh, wanted to get. This is success. Success is defined by how much power you have and how much power you have is defined by how much money you have, how much mm. fame you have and or how much military prowess and power you have. And so th- obviously it makes sense on that system for women to also get, you know, a share of the cake, if it were, uh, as it were. And uh, and that's the, the logic. So a lot of feminists will come out and say, well, why is it not the case that in parliament, for example, there isn't an exact number of men, uh, men as there is in, uh, women, uh, women as there is men, and so on. And so these questions are asked because remember, they're going at the top echelons. They're going for, the, for politics, economics uh, and society and looking at where is uh, the decision making ability. But there's there's a there's a range of problems with this because number one, really, we don't think as Muslims, right, that power is defined in or success is defined in power terms, and power is defined in those terms. In fact, there's a beautiful verse in Surah Al-Mujadil in chapter 58 of the Quran, which actually tells us where where success and how success is defined. It says, that Allah he raises in status those who have believed from you and those who have been given knowledge in degrees. Thus, from the Islamic uh, perspective or in the Islamic model, it would seem that Allah is saying that spirituality and knowledge is in fact the best way to graduate from point A to point B. In other words, the best way to, to be a better person. This is one of the best identifiers of success. Now, that's not to say that the West doesn't place a great emphasis on education or that even within a capitalist system that, you, that education doesn't matter, but it is to say that success is defined in completely different terms. Hmm. So a president in the you can have a president on an Islamic model or a high chief who although em- employ a very high power position from that socioeconomic placement is the lowest of the low, as far as Safilin, when it comes to spirituality and Islamic knowledge. And therefore, mm-hmm. success will be limited for those individuals, or non-existent even. So the first mm-hmm. thing is, how do we define success? The second thing is, actually, within Western circles, one of the things I remember studying when I was in the first year of undergraduate studies are theories of power. And, you know, they'll tell you different theories of power. And the West and scholars, political philosophers, have not... Um, concluded on what what is power? That's a very big question. So, for example, Dahl says power is to get uh, person A to to do or for for person A to get person B to do something that they would otherwise not do. It's a very standard definition of power. But Backrats and Barretts they say no power is more about influence and this and that's something which is Foucault. He he had a whole power theory. So power itself is ill-defined. It's it's not something which you know philosophers and 
political scientists have all come and said, you know, this is what power is in the first place. But what I find quite interesting about this entire discussion is that something which Walt Farron said in his book, The Myth of Male Power, and he actually talks about this. Uh, and it's a very interesting book, which I recommend. It's one of the best ones to look at on this issue. It's called The Myth of Male Power. And he's actually recently released a book called The Boy Crisis, which is a very good read as well. Um, obviously, you don't agree with everything because it's coming from a Western perspective, but there's also great insights from his, uh, from his perspective. Where he says that really, why is it that we think, like, for example, if you put a woman in the city, in like a, in a, in a, a company, right, in an organization, and she's got three people that she supervises, and then maybe the manager comes with a boss and he says to her, look, you're going to have, you're going to have um, control over five people now, so you're going to supervise or manage five people or six people. Now, obviously, that would be seen as a promotion because now there's more power. There's, in that sense, there's more responsibility. So power and responsibility come hand in hand, right? So power and responsibility come hand in hand. So she's been given more responsibility. She's been therefore given more ability to change people's perspectives and influence different people's lives. It went from three to five. But that same woman, if she was in the house and she has three children and then she has a fourth child, would be seen as, on the feminist model, more oppressed rather than more mm. influential. Absolutely. So you see... Yeah, so, so Farron says, why is it the case that she's seen as more oppressed on the feminist model uh, when she's in one context, when she's over responsibility of more workers, but in another context where actually the influence that she's going to have over the children is going to be way more severe, you know, and than the influence she would have over employees because the employees have certain times, you know, from nine to five, they're in the office, but then after that, they go home. And there are certain things an employer can never do to an employee. There's certain things that, you know, there's terms of engagement. Whereas a mother has much more scope as to what she can do, say. I mean, she even is in charge of the nutrition of the children. Mm. But that level of influence, where she's in charge of the bodily composition, the, you know, the nutrition, the, the psychological state of mind, you know, the, of a child, the ideology of a child. Because the, the sociologists continue to say that the most pressing and the most influential thing on a child's psychological state of mind and what they believe when they're older is parenting and parenting if it's done the lion's share of it is done to by mothers then they are the most influential like you said with napoleon right so if mothers have a belief they're most likely to export that belief they have the most power in doing so to other children so in, so, so in other words here that's not seen as power but really and truly scholars now in the west have actually questioned this and like i said royal farron is one of them uh, quite famously, who has challenges, but even popularly, someone like Jordan Peterson is. I mean, like, I'm not sure. I mean, you might have heard of Jordan Peterson. He's a big name here in the in the West now. Yeah. I mean, he's he's had many debates with feminists, which have become quite viral on the internet, you know. And all of their assumptions are almost questioned now. And to the extent where the white woman, if you want to call her that, in the West, you know, in USA and in England, when they're when they're actually surveyed now, the majority of them, yeah, the majority of women that are surveyed about feminism don't identify with feminism anymore. And it's actually quite an overwhelming majority, over 70 or 80%, that don't, they are not feminists anymore. Mm. And so it seems like what's happening is this, there's a slow trickle-down process. You know, whatever happens in the West is exported to the East, and then they slowly consume it. But when the white woman or the white man changes his ideas, then what, are we going to continue just changing our ideas with the white man or the white woman? Mm. So it is, there is a big colonial 
um, aspect here that we need to think about. And all in all, I would say that we have to question our questions. Like when we say, why is it men that get to have more power than women? You haven't defined power. You haven't defined what it means. What, how, what is power? Have we got a, a decisive meaning of that? And why does it apply in one context or, or not in another? Uh, when we start to really question these things, we realize that actually we don't have the answers that we thought we had. And those individuals that are exporting those ideas don't have the answers that we thought they had. Uh, Brother Muhammad, mashallah, you've uh, really explained uh, the concept between uh, power and how it's not really defined very, very clearly, mashallah. And also the fact that I really like that uh, we don't have uh, a criteria of success which the world is now promoting, or the materialistic world, we, we can say, uh, a world that's now built upon materialism, uh, as opposed to what Islam classifies as success. So regardless of whether you're a king or a peasant, uh, you could still be uh, one of the greatest people in Jannah uh, because of certain other characteristics and things that you did in the life of this world. I have a um, hadith here, which is a very beautiful hadith from Bahiqi, where uh, Asma bint Yazid al-Ansariya is actually mentioned, one of the Sahabiyat of the Prophet And the scene is created where the Prophet is sitting with the Sahaba and he's discussing something. And Asma bint Yazid walks over and she asks a question from the Prophet And she says that I've been sent as, as an ambassador to all the women. And so this is in Medina and she's now coming in and she's saying I'm representing all the women. And so she asked the question that Ya Rasulullah, you know, the men, they they participate in jihad fi sabilillah. The men, they pray in the masajid five times a day. The men, they pray Juma prayer. The men attend to uh, the weak in the community or they go to like visit the sick and they will pray the namaz janaza and all of these things. Uh, you know, so subhanAllah, these men are earning way more rewards than we are. So while we, the women, are at home, we are looking after our husband's properties, we are taking care of their kids, we're stitching their clothes, we're listening to, you know, so she mentions all of the things that women are doing at home and then she's comparing that with what the men are doing outside and she said, and what she's competing for is exactly what you talked about, that she's, she's looking at it from a different perspective, that success that the Sahaba are having from a spiritual perspective is way more than what we have at home. So she said, Ya Rasulullah, do we get... Uh, Ajar, or what are the ways in which we can get Ajar like the Sahaba are getting in doing all of these amazing things that they're doing for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Prophet ﷺ, he turned to the Sahaba and he said that have you ever heard a question as beautiful as this? Have you ever heard a question so amazing as this? And the Sahaba said, Ya Rasulullah, we, we did not know that women of, were capable of asking such an amazing question. And so subhanAllah, the Prophet ﷺ, he looks at her and he says that uh, Remember that whatever you are doing at home, inshallah Rahman, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give you all of the ajar that the sahaba are getting by you know working outside in the fields or going for jihad all of that ajar, all of that reward, you the women can get sitting at home as long as you are sincere for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the Sahaba mentioned that when this Sahabiya she left, she was, you know, chanting slogans like Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. She was so happy and so excited. And the Prophet told her that communicate this message to all of the women. So subhanAllah, from the Islamic perspective, we know that as long as you are still getting the reward uh, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the most just. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will always do justice. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will provide opportunities for you to earn righteous good deeds inshallah rahman And so when that happens, at the end of the day, the life of this world is nothing. 
You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, بَلْ تُعْصِرُونَ الْحَيَاةَ الدُّنْيَا وَالْآخِرَةُ خَيْرٌ وَأَبْقَى You prefer the life of this world, but the hereafter is better and longer lasting. So at the end of the day, we remember that we have to go back. This life will be over in the blink of an eye. It will be over in just a few days. But what will last forever is your amale salihah, your righteous good deeds that, will, that you will take with you inside the grave. There is no uh, pockets in your, in your shroud. When, you know, uh, when we will be wrapped up in that shroud, it's not going to have pockets. But the only thing that you will take with you are your righteous good deeds. So inshallah, as long as we have that in mind, um, we realize that the criteria of success that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes for us is very, very different from what the world is now giving to us as the criteria of success. Uh, Brother Hijab, I will ask you, because you mentioned um, uh, Jordan Peterson, I will ask you this, that you know there are several uh, speakers, politicians, uh, writers, authors, academics out there who are now uh, dealing with feminism in a very nuanced way. For example, Jordan Peterson, uh, uh, Jordan Peterson, me, one of them, also Ben Shapiro and others. Do you think it would be, um, should Muslims ally with such people or do you think that these people have other agendas or other things working with them and it might be just best to maybe take from their knowledge and just leave it at that or not to take from them? How would you, how would you uh, deal with that? I think someone like Jordan Peterson doesn't really offer much that hasn't already been said before to the discourse. Um, he seems to be taking a lot from Warren Farron. In fact, Warren Farron has actually been hosted in his show once before. And if you listen carefully to Jordan Peterson and his um, arguments against feminism, a lot of them use almost copy and paste style Warren Farron's argument. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing. For me, I, do, I would just say that, like, for example, when I use his ideas, I've also used them in this interview. I actually mentioned his name in the book. Hmm. Just as a as a as a academic point, because I don't want to make people think that it's coming from me. It's not my idea. Someone that some something that someone else said. And in fact, there's great um, advantages that I can get from that because Walt Farren was a feminist for 20 years, for example, hmm. right? And he was part of the movement, and then he kind of decided that there's lots of inconsistencies in the in the worldview. And so that's just one example. I don't think Jordan Peterson has really um, he on the public level. He's done a great job in the interviews against. Uh, Kathy Newham, a Newman, and uh, another woman that he had an interview with. He had he, on feminism. I think he done a good job in those interviews. Mm. But once again, if you re, if you want to if you want to really involve yourself in it, start with the myth of male power. I think it's a good book, you know, um, of of Farron. But also some of the stuff that I've written as well, and some of the stuff that I've uh, tried to put out there. I mean, quite frankly, I, I I don't think that Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro in particular, because they have anti-Islamic tendencies and they exactly, they exactly. associate with people who are not uh, pro-Islam. Uh, mm. And they've also said things which are inflammatory to Islam and Muslims. So uh, I don't, I've never heard Ben Shapiro. Yeah, I've just seen him like, you know, on, on YouTube videos attacking small time students and stuff like that. But I don't think he's written anything substantive on the matter. But uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to them or even give them, uh, views or numbers because of their anti-Islamic uh, messaging, and um, I think that we have to kind of remain loyal uh, to, because obviously Jordan Peterson has gone as far as to, to even speak badly of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam himself. He's he's mm. he's used words which he shouldn't have used in ignorance. And Ben Shapiro has said things about uh, you know Muslims and which which he shouldn't have said about Arabs, which he shouldn't have said. And so he, they have not apologized for any of that until they do. And th even if they do, I mean, to be honest, uh, their allegiances are quite clear. So I, I would stay clear.
Hmm. Okay, Brajak Lakhair for that. Uh, I just wanted to uh, wrap things up here now and take yeah. your final word on uh, what advice you would give to youngsters out there who are listening to this podcast or who will listen to this podcast later on and uh, who are struggling with you know concepts like feminism, liberalism, uh, secularism, all these other isms, schisms, and they're kind of battling with them, they're influenced by them, and then they look at Islam and at some points they think that, you know, uh, Islam is uh, not conducive to feminism or Islam is not conducive to liberalism. So what kind of advice would you give to somebody who is listening to us right now and are, is having those type of thoughts or those type of doubts? Where can they start from? How can they start uh, learning the deen of Allah and how can they, you know, get out of that uh, kind of mind frame uh, where they're looking at Islam as the um, backward or uh, you could say uh, really the old school kind of mentality? I think what it is is that we have to realize our own biases and our own influences, right? So if, if we're talking about the questions that we're asking today would not have been asked 100 years ago. Hmm, true, absolutely. That, that is that is a fact. The questions that people ask about that are related to gender now are new questions that are a product of certain social developments. Most of those developments have taken place in the West, and they have trickled down to our countries. Hmm. That is a that is a reality. It's not that the truth has changed or that suddenly everyone has now been endowed with common sense that they never had before. It's simply that certain rights and certain I've, I've always used this example now homosexuals have an unprecedented right to marriage to even divorce to uh, obviously uh, being in a relationship with one another etc but incest relationships are still banned in mo most of the west you mm -hmm. can't marry your sister you can't marry your brother mm -hmm. but once again it's the same guiding principle it's the i mean homosexuality has been justified based on the harm principle, based on the mm. principle that you can do something to, you can do whatever you want so long as you don't harm anyone else. But the same guiding principle is not used with two brothers or two sisters, or it can be. But the thing that changed history was the fact that homosexuals were very active in the 1960s and 70s. They came out in droves and they campaigned. Had that not been the case, homosexuality probably would not be uh, as, accept as accepted as a morality as it is today, uh, you know, as much as incest would be. Mm. The only thing that incest, that incestuous relationships haven't done is that they haven't come out and have a, had a civil rights movement. There's been no civil rights movement for incestuous relationships. So the fact that civil rights movements determine moralities and accepted norms should not influence your morality because that's the advice I would give the experiences of the West should not be the all-defining experiences which regulate what is right and wrong for us. And the, and you know, the changing moralities of the West can't be the ruler through which we measure all other uh, morality. Shouldn't be. So you need to know that you're not, uh, when, you're, when, you're, when you're influenced by uh, liberalism and uh, and feminism all those things you're not being objective you think you are you might think this is the common sense method this is the correct way that these you know these westerners are right but the truth of the matter is you're just being influenced and maybe a hundred years from now you'd be influenced in a different way hmm. 
Bro, mashallah, you've uh, really explained it uh, very well and I'm really glad that you joined us for this special podcast. Uh, my sincerest prayers for you, mashallah. And I do hope that uh, you can join us again uh, in the future as well and we can benefit from your uh, extensive knowledge in these areas of liberalism, feminism, secularism and all of these things, mashallah. Uh, to all of our viewers and listeners, I will say thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, inshallah, I hope that you found uh, the session today to be beneficial. Um, uh, all that we have said, which was good, is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Only the mistakes are our own. Uh, do remember us and uh, our team and Brother Muhammad Ijab and his team in your very special du'as. You can check out his uh, YouTube channel, mashallah. He's, he's very active there. He's posted tons of videos and a lot of the stuff that we've talked about, mashallah, he's covered in a lot of extensive detail with various talks and so on. And as he also mentioned and pointed out that he's also answered a lot of the common doubts that people raise, especially against Islam and so on. So all of that you can check out on his YouTube channel. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. I will see you guys inshallah next week, same time, same channel. Until then, uh, do remember me in, uh, in your special du'as. Barakallahu fikum. Subhanak Allahumma wa bihamdika ashhadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilaik wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh